Welcome to the Calvary Limerick Podcast, the teaching ministry of Pastor David Cowper. We're a church that seeks to live together before the face of God. We hope today's message blesses you. So when I first saw, the, or first read actually, the Chronicles of Narnia, I didn't really get that there was deep Christian metaphors C.S. Lewis was using and had intertwined into the story. I'm going to say I was too lost in the universe he created, and that I'm not just some feckless Egypt that doesn't get metaphors, but also that. I redeemed myself by getting most of the metaphors in Buffy though, so that's okay. Anyway, it wasn't until the movie came out that I began to see on the big screen some of the great stories about Jesus being retold and thinly veiled in the wonderful world that is Narnia. And there's probably still tons of metaphors in the three movies that have come out so far that I'm still missing. Today we have the real beginnings of Jesus's earthly ministry as Matthew recorded it. In other words, Jesus is on the move. And if you've ever seen the newer version of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you might remember the scene where the children are with the beavers and Mr. Beaver tells them Aslan is on the move. At the start of the movie, the children come through at the lamppost and it's deep in winter and they're told it's always winter in Narnia but never Christmas. And one of the ways the children know Aslan really is on the move is that they meet Santa because Christmas has come. And then as they get even closer to where Aslan is, the snow is melting in those areas and it's springtime there. Where Aslan goes, winter ends. And we will see from the beginning of his ministry that where Jesus goes, winter ends too. Majesty is on the move. Everything we have seen in the Gospel of Matthew up until now has been preparation for this moment, for the moment that Jesus truly begins his public ministry. We've seen his lineage, his birth, the visit of kings recognizing his majesty, his baptism and his temptation, preparing him for public ministry, showing him to be the Messiah that God promised his people long ago. Now Jesus is on the move and it's exciting and we will see the effect of Jesus being on the move ending a metaphorical winter and announcing a new kingdom, a better kingdom. Not the white witch's kingdom or Satan's kingdom, but Aslan's kingdom, God's kingdom. So reading the second half of Matthew chapter 4 today, verses 12 to 25. But before we read it, let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you are such a great God, that you love us so much that you have not left us in our sin, but that you sent Jesus to live a perfect life, fulfilling the law, and to die a death that paid the price for our sins, and then was raised to life so that we can have life with him. Lord, we thank you for this beginning of his ministry, and just what we're going to see when Jesus started proclaiming your kingdom and proclaiming who you are, that just the reaction to it, Lord, And Lord, we just pray as we read it that your Holy Spirit will be working in our hearts to help us to have a similar reaction, Lord. The reaction that we'll see the disciples having and other people in the crowds having, that they decided to follow him, Lord. That we would do the same thing. In your name we pray. Amen. So it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived by Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that was spoken, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought, <coughs> excuse me, brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. It's often thought that Jesus' earthly ministry lasted about three years and that he began when he was 30 years old. The section we're looking at today mostly falls within Jesus' first year, typically called the year of obscurity. The first year of Jesus' ministry is the fastest passed over in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John chapters one to four do talk a bit more about this period. Mark and Luke say almost nothing about it. The second year is the year of popularity, and then the third year is the year of suffering, as Jesus becomes increasingly unpopular with religious leaders of his day, and they increase their opposition to him, resulting in eventually in his kangaroo court trial, his death, and unbeknownst to them at the time, his resurrection. And the section that we're looking at today, we're going to kind of fly through it, is broken into three in my Bible, so that's how we'll take it. Three stories at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as Matthew records it. <coughs> Excuse me. Then in December, we'll get to the Sermon on the Mount, which is basically one of the biggest and greatest teaching blocks from Jesus in the Bible. So let's read the first section again, verses 12 to 17. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that was what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way, sorry, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region of shadow of death, on them has, a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to, began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first thing we read is that John the Baptist has been arrested. That sets the timing up. If you read those first couple of chapters in John's Gospel, you'll see that John the Baptist is still on the scene at that point. And so this is after those events. We won't right now go into why John was arrested, 
because that will become more important and evident later on. But for now, it's enough to say that John did not deserve to be in prison. He was declaring the truths of God and he was arrested for it. And that's becoming more and more of a reality for us today. As people who preach Christ in the public are being silenced or arrested, even in free countries like our own. The Holy Spirit, who is leader of our lives as Christians, could lead us into situations in which we come into conflict with ruling authorities. That shouldn't be our hope, it shouldn't be our aim, it shouldn't be our goal, but it could end up being our reality. John's end isn't a nice one, and being a Christian doesn't guarantee that the end of your life will be a nice one either. But what it does guarantee is that there's something greater, something better, waiting for you beyond however this life ends for you. So John is arrested, but Jesus comes on the scene in a powerful way. Matthew has an interest in showing that Jesus is a continuation of the work of God being done. He continues the ministry of John the Baptist, even while bringing it on and building on it. And another way that Matthew likes to show that continuation is the references to prophecies from the Old Testament that he has, one of his themes. And he shows how Jesus fulfills those prophecies. And we're going to see another one very, very soon. Another important thing to notice about John the, Baptist, John the Baptist's arrest is that it causes Jesus to go back to Galilee. Things are getting tense in, in Judah, so Jesus moves north. Ha ha ha. So, from this first section, we can see that majesty is literally on the move. Jesus is going places, literally. First, he goes from Judah, which is down here, Judea, to Galilee, which is up there. Possibly via Samaria, which is where he meets that woman at the well, if you know that story. When he gets to Galilee, he first goes to his hometown in Nazareth, which is here. But he doesn't stay there. He instead goes to Capernaum. And we're told this is by the sea, which is the Sea of Galilee. This sea was called a lake by most other cultures because they knew what real seas were. This sea is 14 miles north to south and then seven miles east to west at the widest point. And Capernaum is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can see it there in red. It had an estimated population of 1,500 to 2,000 people, meaning that it would have been a lot bigger than Nazareth at the time. And we're told that it's in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. These were two of the 12 tribes of Israel. They each descended from one of the 12 sons of Jacob. When they took the promised land, they divided the territory between them and Zebulun and Naphtali got this bit up along here. Capernaum would be Jesus' base for the remainder of his ministry in Galilee. And he was probably living in Simon Peter's house, who we know was married because we're later introduced to his mother-in-law. In verses 14 to 16, we're given another prophecy. If you remember back to our first message in this series, you'll remember that we said one of the themes of Matthew is fulfilled prophecy. 
he was wise about the things that God had promised about the Messiah in the Old Testament. He knows where to find those promises and he freely quotes them and shows how Jesus fulfills those promises. This particular promise, or this prophecy, comes from Isaiah chapter 9, but there's a difference in how it's quoted. In Isaiah, it says the people who walked in darkness, but when Matthew quotes it, he says the people who dwell in darkness. Things had gotten worse. People didn't just walk in darkness, they lived in it. And often what begins as walking in darkness can end up as living in darkness if you aren't walking with the Lord. You might be involved in something not very pleasing to God, not as a missionary, though you might tell yourself that, but as a participant. Be careful because walking in darkness often leads to dwelling in darkness. And before you know it, you can consider yourself part of the furniture, as Oliver Twist was told, a sorry state for any Christian to be. The areas in the north of Israel owned by Zebulun and Naphtali had experienced great turmoil. This area is sometimes called Galilee of the Gentiles, and you see that in verse 15, because since the time of this Syrian invasion, when the northern kingdom, that's like this much of it, um, fell to the Assyrian Empire, right up until Jesus' day, it had been con controlled by a Gentile country, a Gentile empire. A little bit of time in the second century, it was back under the control of Jewish people, but that was before Rome came and they took it back over and they governed it again. Gentiles are people who are not Jewish, people who are not part of the chosen people back in this time, people who didn't know God. That's why it says people dwelling in darkness. They were in darkness because they didn't know who God is. As you walk around Limerick this coming week, or if you're listening online or you're watching the live video, wherever it is you walk around this week, a great number of people you meet will be living in darkness. People who do not know God. But look at the next bit. The prophecy says that those people who are dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. The part of Israel that was under Gentile, godless control for so long would be the part that would experience Jesus' ministry first. I want us to notice two things from that. Because of Jesus in us, he who is the light of the world, we are the light of the world. That's in the Sermon on the Mount, so we're going to look at that in more detail sometime next year. The people around us that are living in darkness, their eyes have adjusted to the dark so that they think it's bright. It's we, through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, which show the darkness for what it is. And some people hiss at you when you turn on a light in a dark room, so we should expect that to happen. But some people will see the light and never be able to live in darkness again. And that's what we want, that's what God wants. And the second thing I want you to notice is the two places we've seen adult Jesus going so far. The first was to the wilderness, a place you might not expect to find God. And the second is the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. What this might mean for us practically today is that the people we think that are least likely to respond to the gospel are possibly the people that God will show himself to first among that group. We should never write people off when it comes to spreading the gospel because that is to doubt the work and the power of God. In verse 17, 
Matthew tells us, from that time. This is the turning point in Jesus' ministry. It's no longer preparation for ministry. This is ministry now. And what is the message? It's similar to John the Baptist's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at, at hand. Remember we said when we were looking at when John the Baptist said the same thing, that on hand means so close you can touch it in Hebrew phraseology. It's right beside your hand, like this is to my hand right now. So we come to the second of the three stories in our section today. And this is the calling of Jesus' first disciples. So let's read verses 18 to 22 again. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This story always seems really amazing when you read it. You see the disciples' response to Jesus and you're amazed by their faith and how swiftly they leave everything to follow Jesus. And you might feel like your own faith is inadequate. And maybe it is. But the disciples, remember, aren't known for their amazing faith. At least not while Jesus is around with them. This meeting isn't their first meeting with Jesus. John's Gospel tells us that Andrew, mentioned here in verse 18, was a disciple of John the Baptist, and he believed John when he said that Jesus was the Messiah. And he introduced his brother, and possibly James and John, who worked in the same area, to Jesus. That's not to say that faith is unimportant. When you read the Gospels, you will see one of the things Jesus talks about most is faith. In my teenage Bible, I have some notes in the margin as I read through them, and one of the most recurring notes is Jesus is talking about faith again, or some variation of that, like faith must be important. He talks about it a lot. Still, for Simon, who became Peter, Andrew, James, and John to follow Jesus like they did, even having previously met him, it still takes a lot of faith. And God will often call us to do things or into situations that require us to have a lot of faith in him, in his goodness and in his love for us. And I don't mean just things like this, like planning a church or going on a missions trip. Many things in our lives that we can be called to require great faith from us. The money to celebrate Christmas, to pay the car insurance, to pay the mortgage, to pay the rent, whatever it is. All of these things can require our faith. And they're probably things that God has called us into to having the house, buying the presents, having the car, whatever it is. In the first three verses of this section, 18 to 20, we have the story of the calling of Simon and Andrew. These two, two brothers had been disciples of Jesus for about a year, that year of obscurity that we were talking about earlier, because we're coming to the end of it now with these stories and the beginning of the year of popularity. However, Simon and Andrew seem to have gone back to their day jobs. For these two particular men, and another ten later on, the call was not to have their day job again. For others in the Bible, their call from God was to have a day job. Others were called to do something for God for a time, and then return to their day job, 
and be faithful to God in that. And for some people, their day job was not something we would consider as being a day job, like King David's. The important thing isn't what job you have. The important thing is that you are where God has called you to be and that you hold the place, position or role, whatever it is, with an open hand, willing to go somewhere else or to do something else if that was what God called you to do. The men are fishermen. They use big nets to cast, catch fish. So what does Jesus say to them? In verse 19 he says, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's contextual. The call for these men is to leave their old job, fishing for fishes, and follow Jesus full time, and he will make them fishers of men. This doesn't mean that they would be walking around the streets of Israel with a fishing rod, casting it and catching some poor sod in the jaw with a hook and reeling him in and saying he has to follow Jesus as he's reeling him in. It means that they would be involved in Jesus' ministry reaching people with the good news, though they probably weren't fully sure what exactly the good news was themselves at that time. And the phrase was not an unknown one, fishers of men. In fact, Jesus didn't make it up. It had been used by Greek philosophers for centuries, and it described the work of the man, the philosopher, who was trying to catch others by his teaching and methods of persuasion. But notice that when Jesus said it, they immediately left their nets and they followed him. Next, Jesus comes across three other people, Zebedee and his two sons, James and John, who were later called the Sons of Thunder. Most people, that think, most people think that Zebedee had a big fishing business, and the mention of the boat probably indicates that. You'll notice that there's no boat mentioned with Andrew and Simon, but there is with Zebedee. This boat would have been 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and would have had a staff of 15 people. There were four rowers, a helmsman, and then those in charge of the fishing. Jesus' call to them is the same as it was to Peter and to Andrew, to leave their nets and leave their father's business and follow him in his full-time ministry. That's a challenge, isn't it? They walked away from business and their inheritance and their security in life to follow Jesus. And so now we're on to the third and the final of our stories. So let's read the last few verses, 23 to 25 again. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, and those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus went through all of Galilee. Galilee had a population of around 300,000 people in 204 or 206 different villages, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, who lived at the time. Jesus traveled through these villages, bringing his message. And verse 23 tells us of the threefold ministry of Christ. He went teaching his disciples and those in the synagogues. He also went proclaiming, and that's different from teaching. You teach those who believe or who are interested, 
and you proclaim to those who don't know the message. There's two different words there. And then the third thing he was doing was healing. Remember in our opening story, we were talking about Aslan being on the move. Where Aslan was, there was an end to the endless winter. With Jesus, things are similar. Where he goes, the winter of Satan's rule is over. And part of that, a physical sign of that, is the healing that happened wherever Jesus went. When we hear of Jesus' healings, what we are seeing is a foretaste of the glory that is to come when the kingdom of God finally, truly, and fully comes to us. Notice that in the description of Jesus' ministry, that it is holistic. He preaches the gospel and he teaches the Bible. Yes, of course he does. But he also cares for the physical needs of those he is teaching and proclaiming to. Many Christians fall on one side of the coin or the other. They're either into a spiritual gospel or a social gospel. The spiritual gospel is the one you will find amongst evangelicals who are Christians like us. Most often. It's the gospel that sees the physical needs of people you minister to as not important as, important as the spiritual needs. These people will not be as interested in helping people with food, clothes, finances, healthcare, those sort of things, at least on an organizational level. And those who are interested in a social gospel on the other side of the coin will be interested in those things, food, clothes, and healthcare, but they won't be interested in telling people about their need of a savior, about the great love for them that God has, about their sin that separates them from that great love, at least on an organizational level. We in Calvary Chapel like to be balanced in the middle of the controversial things in Christianity. But I would say as a movement from what I've seen, there is a leaning towards a spiritual gospel within the global Calvary Chapel movement. And it would be my own leaning as well. So I have a failing in caring for people's physical needs at times. And we'll need those of you passionate about caring for people's physical needs to steer Calvary Limerick in that direction while I keep our eye on the spiritual gospel side of things. In verse 24, we mention a place called Syria. Today there's a country in the Middle East called Syria. It's partially the same area as the region known as Syria in Jesus' day, but the modern country is bigger, encompasses a greater area than the Roman region would have. And it would have been a totally Gentile area. Jesus was known even there. And even there, Jesus was healing, casting out demons, and doing ministry. His ministry was to all, always to more than just the Jewish people. It was to us, the Gentiles, as well. And the community founded in his name brings a great mystery of God to light. The Jews and the Gentiles becoming one people group. The last verse, verse 25, reads, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. People were following him from everywhere he went to wherever he went. Majesty was on the move and people were noticing. These people had responded, in some sense, to his teaching and healing ministry, but had probably not yet become his disciples. The Decapolis was a group of ten cities founded by Alexander the Great when he took over things, 
That's why it's called a Greek name, which just means ten cities. There are ten cities that were also Gentile. And then the area beyond the Jordan would have been east of the Jordan River, the area known as Jordan today. And if you remember the map from a minute ago, Gad, Reuben, and half of Manasseh were on that side of the river. But at Jesus' time and still today, that land lies outside of Israel. So what's the point for us today? As we hear about majesty being on the move, we hear about another thing as well. The crowds are on the move because they're following him wherever he goes. And that's the application for us today, to follow Jesus. Not necessarily to Syria, I wouldn't recommend you go there, or some other far off place. But in your decisions that you make today, in this coming week, this coming month, how you use your time, how you spend your money, how you talk to other people in all areas and all aspects of your life. Of course, this is not something that we need to muster up the ability to do. This is something done in and through the power of God's Holy Spirit at work in us. And that means you will fall and you will fail. But God's love, mercy and grace are there to pick you up. Why? Majesty is on the move. And where he was moving to ultimately is the cross. The cross where Jesus died and paid the price for our sin after living a life that fulfilled all righteousness that allows us to live for him today and follow him today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your son. Thank you again for the cross. Thank you for the beginning of Jesus' ministry that attracted so much attention and had people from even Gentile nations and lands looking to Jesus for, for healing and for whatever he could give them, Lord. And Lord, we pray that that kind of superficial following that they did wouldn't be so amongst us, Lord, but that we would follow like the disciples followed and not like the crowds followed. That we would follow believing, that we would follow in faith, that we would follow in, in sacrifice, um, and not just for the things that Jesus can give us, Lord, but out of the love that we have for him because he first loved us. Lord, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. And Lord, we pray that as we go through this coming week, that we would follow you in the little things, Lord, those decisions that we think maybe aren't big and don't need to be brought to you, Lord, that we would look for your guidance in those things and look for your will in those things and look for your example in how to live and how to deal with and how to do those things, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.